Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring, integrating our animal nature with our spiritual nature. With me is Paul LeMay, who is co-author with Dr. Hafzia Bayramovich, a Canadian psychiatrist of a fascinating two-volume set of books called Primal Mind, Primal Games. Once again, this is an internet interview, and so now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Paul. It's a pleasure to be with you. Good afternoon there, Jeff. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, your work. You've spent, uh, I, I guess, many years working with, with your co-author, Hifsia Bayramovich. You got it. Uh, you, I, I, and I, I read in the book you worked with him for eight years or more. Actually, yeah, more like 10 years. So it's a decade-long process to get that thing or two books done, right? And uh, he was a, uh, or is still a psychiatrist uh, in, I believe, Ottawa. He is still a practicing psychiatrist. He's no longer at the hospital where he uh, was um, employed as a um, outpatient psychiatrist, um, because once you hit seventy-five, you've got to say uh, bye-bye to the institution. But he still does practice. Yes. And I gather that uh, basically your approach is what would be considered consistent with evolutionary psychology, looking at the uh, impact of, of our evolutionary history on our current behavior. Absolutely. I mean, it's, a, it's an integrated view. You know, we try to, there's a term in science that's used, uh, it, it's called closure. It's not the way we normally hear the word, but closure is supposed to be a way of reconciling the, the disparate views for each of the subspecialties, whether it's in science or, in this case, psychology and psychiatry. Because, as you know, you can get into some pretty minute uh, subspecialties. So language tends to become very specialized in each subspecialty. And then we don't really, we can sometimes uh, speak to one another cross purposes. We're not quite sure what the other person means. So with evolutionary psychology, it has its own views, true, and it, the book is definitely anchored in that, but it goes way beyond that, of course, because it's covering a lot of ground. In effect, what you're saying is that we can take a look at the behavior of our primate ancestors or our primate cousins, as, as it were, and uh, show how it's applicable to politics, to science, to uh, uh, everyday business activities, and so on. Absolutely, and it's not one, it's not a thing that we're normally comfortable admitting to ourselves, you know, because. You look at apes in the in the jungle, you know, as with Jane Goodall, the research that she did. And um, if anybody who's familiar with the chimpanzee literature, and I've read the chimpanzee literature, um, it, they know that the chimpanzees are a cantankerous bunch. They're not easy. They 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 don't mind their own company in their small kin group, but when it comes to outsiders, they're very suspicious and in some cases violent. So, you know, you can sort of see some parallels between their behavior and ours. Uh, you know, I'd have to say that we've evolved uh, uh, many more steps beyond what the chimps do, obviously, but 
but they're still relics of, of initial behavior patterns that still play out in the way we behave. You know, when I was a an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin many years ago, I got to meet uh, Harry Harlow, who was considered at the time the most famous scientist in Wisconsin, who did uh, some groundbreaking work studying the rhesus monkey. And they had a big monkey lab uh, in Madison where he worked, uh, showing that... Uh, uh, physical comfort was very important to these rhesus monkeys. The, the surrogate mother show, was, uh, uh, showed that the, these little baby monkeys wanted something they could cuddle with even more than uh, food itself. Right. And that, that speaks to something really essential about even human nature, and that, that's the emotional dimension of our being. Um, we are social animals, and we really do need to have not just kin groups, but really deep interconnection with one another because that's how we survived. And I think that Harlow's experiments really kind of gave shed light on that. And, and even, you know, monkeys are obviously not as, quote, we say, as evolved as chimps. Um, but still, nonetheless, th there is a still primate, the primate family still also has a lot of overlaps and, and uh, carry through on different behaviors. Well, I gather that the core of your work involves three basic uh, mindsets that uh, that you refer to that uh, through which you can analyze a, a wide, vast uh, variety of behaviors. As you mentioned, there are three mindsets, and these terms were basically uh, generated by my co-author uh, in the course of his practice. And in fact, these were terms that he developed before I came along into the process, back probably in the early 1990s. And uh, so the mindset terminology, there were three mindsets that he discerned, and he called them fighting, appeasing, and defeated. And uh, now one has to remember that those terminologies came out of a therapeutic context, psychotherapy context. So they were very suitable for that context. Uh, but when you look at the literature more generally, when you step back and say, well, have any other theorists kind of found similar patterns? And there are. Uh, they use different terminologies, but they're really kind of talking about the same underlying process. So, for example, uh, Clayton Aldifer is a name that a lot of people know, and he was a psychologist at Yale University, and he developed what was called the ERG theory. And ERG is basically an acronym. Uh, existence needs, relatedness needs, and growth, growth needs. So, Aldifer's work, which one of the reasons it's so powerful is because he took Abraham Maslow's uh, five-step pyramid, and a lot of people are familiar with that hierarchy of needs pyramid, and he was a big fan of uh, Maslow's, and he wanted to find out uh, whether he could validate uh, quantitatively those categories. So he went to town with that, with some experiments, and then he found that it really wasn't fitting the model. And as good, any good experimentalist will know, that it's the, the observations trump the theory. So you have to adjust the theory and not adjust, right? So that's where this became powerful. So with the existence needs, relatedness needs, and growth needs, there is a nice mapping onto these three mindsets that we call, you know, fighting, appeasing, and uh, uh, defeated. So you you really want to, so that gave a lot of power of predictive uh, predictive power and validation to the concept. There is this kind of triumvirate of categories that are playing out 
in the basic function of the, the human mind. And, and, and I want to stress that. That's the basic function. It's kind of the, the go-to uh, operating system that the mind relies on when it's first assessing information in an environment and how it relates to the environment, how it relates to other people, how it relates to the needs that it has within. There, are, there was other research that was also done in child development. And uh, in, that, in that area with Chess, Thomas, and Birch, they found over a 10-year period of longitudinal study, they also came up with a, a triumvirate category system. They initially had around nine categories, but they distilled it down to, into, three, into three basic uh, areas, constellations. And uh, if I can remember them off the top of my head, uh, slow to warm, easy, and difficult. So difficult would kind of uh, map onto fighting mindset. And uh, ironically, growth needs also uh, map onto uh, fighting mindset. So I, I, this is the other part of the story that needs to be told. Terminologies like fighting, appeasing, and defeated sort of connote a psychopathology. And really what we need to understand is that it's a, it's a, two, it's a kind of a two-sided story that growth needs, for example, are very functional, very adaptive. Assertiveness is very adaptive. Focused minds um, on a given topic um, is very adaptive. So those are not dysfunctional behaviors. But what we're looking at is this, uh, when a given mindset is used too much, excessively, then we, we enter into the field of psychopathology. So this is the beauty and power of the story, is that we all know that there are other dimensions of the mind which are adaptive, but if you overuse any given mindset, you're going to run into some kind of difficulty. Now, the, perhaps the last thing I'll say on this point right now is that when we look at um, the DSM, in the DSM-4, DSM-4 had, I believe, 280 categories or so. We're talking about the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, used to uh, indicate various forms of psychopathology. So that manual is the go-to Bible, as you know, in, in psychotherapy. Um, still is, actually. They've changed things with DSM-5. But um, what we were looking at, like 283 categories or so, and what, what it meant was, it was almost like there was a different <clears throat> flavor of ice cream for every given condition. And what my co-author found is that, and he was familiar with all that material as well, and he had a wide spectrum of, of clients. You know, he had people who were having marriage breakdown. He had people who were uh, um, victims of sexual abuse, physical abuse. He had military people who were, uh, you know, uh, had difficulty with PTSD. So what was so interesting to him is that as he, you know, over the years, we're talking, you know, he had a 30-year career, and then around 30 years, he's decided he better write a book. Around the 30-year um, point in this process, he realized that there was commonalities, uh, dis despite thematic commonalities, despite differences in diagnostic conditions. And so he really began to think about that and puzzled. And he said, there's something common underlying all of these, these problems. And then he could see that eventually he could see that you got clusters of problems, say, it was related to the fighting mindset, which would be aggressive behavior, bullying, and whatever. And then the same thing with the defeated mindset and the, and the appeasing mindset. 
So he realized that what we're really talking about is like these are the uh, the nucleating points from which all psychopathologies emerge, which is a really deep insight, I have to say. You know, like anybody who's worked in psychotherapy and, and is familiar with the science knows that it's human mind is a slippery thing. You don't get, there's no clean categories. Everything seems to be, you know, like what they call it in, in physics, a fuzzy logic. Things are on the on the edges of all the time, and and you it's never a clean category, and and so this helps to explain a little bit why that's the case. Um, but we we are seeing these three fundamental um, nucleating points, which are the root of each of these three sort of like global potential areas of psychopathology. It really helps to to clarify underlying processes. When you look out at the world as a whole and, and see all of the problems that humans are, are creating, it's quite evident that these forms of psychopathology or nucleating conditions for psychopathology have huge ramifications in our social and political life. Each of our books has a same main title, Primal Mind, Primal Games, but we have different subtitles. So the first book was called Why We Do What We Do. And that was focused really more on the individual story. You know, how is this, what are the basic core principles of, of uh, victimization process theory, or we just call it that, uh, or primal process theory now. And the second book, it was called uh, Primal Mind, Primal Games, A Dawn Breaks Over Armageddon. And that's a pretty uh, heavy title given the context of, of the times at the moment. Uh, but what it was pointing to is that there are, um, in political science, they call them cleavages. When a given mindset becomes dominant in a culture, as our culture, we, you know, we have stratified culture, you know, we have classes, we call them classes, but we could almost look at the social pyramid as also following the three mindset system. You have the fighters at the top, you have the appeasers in the middle, and you, hear, you have the crushed victims, defeated people at the bottom. And so, again, we're seeing something that would be applied to various contexts so socially. So in politics, we have pecking orders, just like they do in ape societies. We have dominant animals, and those dominant animals basically try to call the shots. And we also have uh, pecking order wars, where you have on the periphery, of the pecking order, you know, that we used to call them um, uh, the court jester or the fool. And today, that's that role is played by co uh, com uh, comedians like Stephen Colbert. And so basically, their role is to, they're slightly below the, 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 the highest point in the, in, in, the, in the pecking order of the fighting mindset, because the fighting mindset itself can be broken down into three subcategories, if you like. You know, there's the middle of the mindset, lower mindset, and upper mindset. So in the lower mindset, a lot of people are engaged in what would be called covert behavior because their goal is to try to climb the social pyramid. So their, their vested interest is to try to undermine the authority of the, the, of the middle mindset leadership figure. And so you, you could look at uh, President Trump as being the example of the middle of the mindset political leader. And so how would that differentiate, say, from someone on the, so we might call the upper mindset. 
an upper mindset person is, is someone who's played the role at the top of that power pyramid, but has become disillusioned. And not necessarily disillusioned in the sense of a bad, the bad connotation of the word, but disillusioned in the liberating sense of the word. They know a lot, they can see through the illusions and they realize that they really need to and want to become effective contributors to the evolution of the culture itself and rather than just uh, furthering their own selfish interests. So, you know, so again, back to appeasing, you can, you also see a stratification of the appeasing mindset, upper appeasing mindset, or the, the keeners, the sycophants, who really want to please the leader and will do anything in order to do that. And we see that played out in uh, modern films where you have, a, say, an, a politician who is the dominant figure in the storyline, and there will often be a, a, an underling, a subordinate, that's running in the coattails and in the coattails of the, of the leader and is trying to, will do anything that the leader asks of him. Same thing in a mafia. The mafia boss is king, and then you have all these upper appeasers who will do anything in order because they just want to be accepted. And that's the thing about appeasement. The main goal is to be accepted by your your peers and to, to not rock the boat. So anyway, that kind of gives you a little bit more of a, a picture, I hope. Well, I think it's important to bring into the discussion uh, what you include sort of at the end of your second book, which is a lot of research on self-actualization, parapsychology, uh, the idea of a superconscious mind, uh, integrated uh, self-actualizing uh, individuals that, that really are neither uh, fighters, appeasers, or, or defeated. It's something more transcendent altogether. Well, yeah, it's, it's something other. So, so really the, the basic, when we were working on the material, as they say, a lot of writers, when they enter into writing a book or writing a poem, they often say that they become, um, not just enamored of the process, but become like children because the process itself opens up new, places of thinking. So it's a dynamic process. And anybody who's a writer knows what I'm talking about. You, you begin, you might set out an, an outline for what you want to write. And as you go through the process of writing, you suddenly have more insight and you start to add to the, you know, embellish the system and you become, by the time you've ended your, your writing, uh, exploration, you realize you've, you've generated something that you could, you could never have predicted that you, you set out to do. So, there's a lot of that in, 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 in looking at, uh, integrating function as uh, integrating self function. What, what we, we were doing when we started out was we had these three mindsets and we thought, well, you know, how does it, how does the human mind evolve beyond those three silos really? And we, we you know, over the course of time, we realize what goes on. And this is, this is supported, you might say, in the brain science itself that we have a structure in the brain called the, not just the corpus callosum, but the actual cingulate cortex, which is on top of this uh, cingulate, uh, the, the corpus callosum, which is effectively a, an integrator of all regions of the, of the brain. It's kind of like the central hub where information goes from the shuttles from the front of the brain to the back of the brain and into the, the deep core of the limbic system. And we call that the default mode network. If, if people who know about the brain will know that, you know, it's like a triangle because information is continually moving through the system all around. What it means is that when you look at a structure in the brain, 
and you look at brain usage with fMRI, you can really begin to discern that, um, that the, what plays out in the brain and which structures are being used in the brain is also suggestive of what functions in terms of the mind that are going on. So looking at that, I mentioned these three silos, and these three silos um, are feeding uh, what we eventually information begins to get integrated. So this, you might say that the boundaries of the silos begin to uh, dissipate or become porous, and then information uh, becomes more nuanced. Because if you're in a given mindset, information has a very rigid quality about it. And so, you know, we say that. We, we actually use it, when we use the word mindset, we say, well, that person's kind of like set. Mind is set in that, that frame. And they can't, they don't seem to be very flexible. And that's more so the case, say, in the fighting mindset, which is very inflexible because it, it has this locus of control, internal locus of control, and it assumes it knows everything, and it's going to be the commander-in-chief of its destiny. But we know life is not like that. So the appeasing mindset and the defeated mindset both add information into our experience, which tells us that there's more to the story than just what we think. Right, we begin to discern very subtle information, and as that happens, the integrating faculty of the corpus callosum and the and the cingulate cortex begin to. I don't know if they're really imposing the new structure, but let's just say they're they're becoming more open to the interplay of information from each of the different silos, and as a result, a, a fourth new. Uh, a faculty begins to emerge, and that's the integrating self-function. And as the integrating self-function emerges, then we begin to see what we call, many people would call, spiritual awareness and spiritual inclination. And and that spills out, and that's a, I'm using the term in the broadest possible sense here. I don't want to restrict it to like religious thinking. What I really want to mean is that Ideas that are sometimes associated with mysticism and the esoteric begin to fall into place. So we're getting something new. And that's where we get into this, the idea and the potential for telepathy. And as you, as you mentioned in the second book, we did start to get into that topic. And believe you me, that was not expected. We didn't think we would be going in that direction. And like I say, like the poet who writes a poem and finds some new metaphor unexpectedly, that's really what happened for us too. We find we found through the integrating self-function doorway, uh, a doorway into something much, much greater than we anticipated. And I mean, if you want me to get into the mechanisms, we can give it a go. And, you know, I know you, I've, I've seen many of your programs about, you know, uh, not just on telepathy, but on, um, remote viewing. And so, you know, it, this, I think, begins to at least provide a few candidate explanations for how that might even be possible with a human mind-brain system. Well, you started out as uh, evolutionary psychologists, which uh, really put you kind of into the materialistic camp. Uh, and, and then you're moving in, of course, to your, your study of the brain and 
Neuroscience as well has a materialistic basis, but when you get into parapsychology and spiritual functioning, all of a sudden you're, you, you have to open yourself up to a completely different metaphysics where it may not be that the mind is a product of the brain. It might be the reverse, that the brain is a product of the mind. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I think there's an interplay between the two. The systems sort of feed each other. And I think in the early stages of our life, I think we are more oriented to and assuming that the material explanation is the explanation, as you said, that mind is somehow the byproduct of brain in action. But I don't, I, personally, I don't believe that. Maybe I did believe that at one point in my earlier, in the earlier parts of my life when I was a university student and undergrad. But today, I don't believe that at all. I believe that it's a much more sophisticated system. And that when we, we're talking about the mind, it's certainly in this other rarefied realm of, of this, what we might call mystical function or esoteric function. I think there, we have to start to think about other processes that are actually at play in, in the human mind-brain system, such as quantum biology. And so we do have lots of candidates in our make our physical makeup, which would actually uh, help us um, to, to, if you like, rationalize the idea that there is an interconnection or a connection between our, 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 the capabilities of our biology and our abilities to intuit uh, a, a realm of knowing that is well beyond the, the strictures of biology alone. Because we have biochemistry, we all know how that works, or at least I hope most of the viewers out there do know how that works in some ways, to some basic, uh, in some basic ways. But when we get into quantum biology, we're sort of like opening the door to a whole new realm. As you know, Jeff, uh, quantum, quantum physics itself has only been here since about the 1920s. So we're only, uh, we're only coming up on a hundred years of that, that, that theory. And of course, it's been accepted in, in physics, but when it first came into, into the, into the story of science, it was not, it was not welcomed. It was not a welcome theory. People really balked at it because of the strangeness of what it was saying. And, and certainly Schrodinger, Erwin Schrodinger thought no less. And when he, a lot of people may not know this, but when he came up with the, uh, the, uh, poison cat paradox, that was meant at first when he, when he wrote about that, he was poking fun at quantum physicists. And in fact, the irony was that years later, he realized that that metaphor that he used was actually, he came to believe that actually was the case, that there is a, there's a situation where you have a, a form of information which is non-discrete, right? We call, we call it indeterminate. And so now we, that opens, and that's where we get into this idea of quantum physics playing a role in biology itself. Now, the conventional view was that you can't have quantum processes in, in a messy, thermally unstable biological context. And well, that, that, that orthodoxy was held for a long time until around, let's just say around 2010. And then we began to see stuff emerging in pretty mainstream science sources like Nature magazine, and it doesn't get more mainstream than that, with uh, quantum biology confirming uh, that photosynthesis itself is a quantum process. And you know, suddenly the you know I went to the AAAS uh, conference here in Vancouver that was held here in I think it was 20, 2011 or twenty twelve, 
and uh, saw Greg Scholes from the University of Toronto presenting this information about confirmation of the of the quantum processes in in biology, and I, I was in a room packed with scientists who were from the world of both physics and biology. It was wonderful to be in the room. <laughs> I got to say for that that thing, it was it's just like a coming home sort of feeling. Um, because once that door was opened, it became, let's just say, within the culture of science, it was at one point not permissible to speak about quantum processes in a biological context. But I think as of 2012, that story changed. That narrative changed. And now we've got lots of latitude that allows for that process. So, all you need is very small time frames, femtosecond time frames, in order for quantum processes to occur. And things that have been staring us in the face for literally decades, when you look at uh, Lewis diagrams, molecular diagrams of different biomolecules, like amino acids and the base pairs in DNA, you'll see what are called indole rings or aromatic rings. And those, those molecules actually have a, if you like, um, try to think of this three-dimensionally. When you look at a, a Lewis diagram, you'll see, looks like little stick figures with uh, hexagons and pentagons and little, little symbols with little lines going off into them, you know, to, to express bonds, hydrogen bonds and nitrogen and whatever other, you know, biochemicals we have. Uh, we, we weren't really paying attention to, you might call it the side view of those molecular diagrams because on this side view, what you have above and below the XY plane of a aromatic ring are what are called pi clouds. And pi cloud, uh, pi clouds have, uh, different uh, physics about them. And what I mean is that they are, they can be receivers of photonic energy and create, uh, there are uh, pi clouds or z-axis or z-axis as they say in the United States, z-axis electrons that are moving above and beyond the plane, the xy plane of the, of the molecule. And in that area, there's like little two donuts above and below the plane. Like you can imagine two donuts or two bagels. And those planes hybridize. Those, those donuts hybridize. So they're a cloud. They're, they're literally a cloud of energy and information both. And there within you have the repository of a, what we would call a, a quantum potential, um, dis, dis, uh, dispersion system. And that system can be entangled with the environment. So when we look at things like remote viewing and telepathy, we have essentially vast numbers of biomolecules in our bodies, be they in the brain, be they in the heart, be they in any, all, all parts of our body, that are actually can, can receive information and probably, very probably, transmit information in a quantum fashion. So quantum communication does not rely on speed of light um, const uh, constraints. It, it plays by a whole different set of rules. So again, we're pushing boundaries of uh, not what we thought we, we, we got ourselves into, but we realize that there's this vast potential of humanity that is really using light to communicate in very subtle ways, both for 
essential biological function purposes, but also for something that's well beyond that. Uh, if I were to put it in a nutshell, it seems as if what you're saying here, Paul, is that the human being contains uh, within our uh, mind-body system uh, the inheritance of our uh, biological ancestors, our primate ancestors, and at the same time what uh, you could call a Buddha mind. Right. And that's really interesting, you know, Jeff, because um, when we think about the human being, you know, some people like to t talk about, you know, the, 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 the possibility of extraterrestrial intelligence and that somehow human, human beings are not as high on the evolutionary ladder as possibly other extraterrestrial beings might be. But, you know, when you look at humans, you see a really um, an interesting constellation of um, what we might call um, variant levels of function. So that we go from the very simple physical expression all the way to the most ineffable possible qualities. And we comprise it all. So when you think of uh, a Buddha mind or a, 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 a God mind, if that's the right term here, I mean, that's a loaded term, we know. But the idea is that if there is a divine mind, that a true divine mind would be multi-dimensional uh, multi in nature. It would be able to relate to the simplest of things and it would be able to relate to the most complex of things. And so in that sense, we have what we might call a full-spectrum consciousness, which is, you know, not something we actually generally teach in our culture. Like, again, we still haven't had closure, you see, in our science. And I would say we haven't had closure in our wisdom traditions either. Because people who, and I, you know, in my own personal life, I've, followed a Buddhist uh, path as well, a Tibetan Buddhist path. I've investigated it. And I know that when you, each little area, terrain of investigation that we explore, there's a whole terminology that goes with it, a whole behavioral uh, conduct norm that goes with it as well. So, but most human beings don't live in these little islands that are isolated from all these other informational islands. We actually are integrated, if you know, or um, integrated. Yeah, we are. We are integrated into a whole vast array of islands, and and I think that's where closure also has to occur. You almost we have to develop a language that's common to all these levels that can comprise and include all of the levels, without sort of signaling that one level is vastly superior to another because I don't think that's the way it works. If you really have genuine compassion that you've evolved, you know, if you are an enlightened being and you have, uh, have aspired to, to evolve your measures of compassion and wisdom and light, you need to be able to relate to the simplest of things. If you aren't, then you're still kind of caught up in the, the egoic m uh, model of consciousness and you're probably still a prisoner of the three mindset system. So the, this is what the integrating self-function is doing. I think it's blowing a hole through the egoic limitation and it's inviting us into something much vaster. But at least now we have a, a bridge work where we can go across the bridge to see that there are two sides to this bridge. 
And I think that's hopefully what these two books do. They provide a kind of framework that allows you to see, okay, here we're starting at the simplest of processes at the biological evolutionary psychology level. And we're going to, you know, we journey through this information, integrating culture, integrating politics, integrating science. And eventually we come to these latter chapters of the book where we just kind of open it up. And, you know, I, I tell you when I, I mean, I, I've been open to the idea of telepathy for many years, but I know I have friends who are, I went to university with, and they're very close to the whole, the whole proposition, very suspicious. And I think that's because they haven't, they haven't explored that mystical, non-linear, indeterminate terrain yet. And once they do, and they integrate it, and begin to integrate it, because I don't think it's an end, an end state. You know, I don't think you, it's trouble, it troubles me when people say, oh, they're awakened, or they're enlightened, because it sounds like it's an end state. I don't think that's how it works. I think we're continually integrating, we're continually building awareness, we're continually growing and learning, and it doesn't matter what level you've achieved, you continually learn, and the more you learn, I think the more you realize that the simplest of levels are, is, are just as profound as the most complex levels. I thought that one of the most interesting aspects of uh, your book in the second volume is where you look at the lives of some of these breakthrough scientists, uh, people like Rupert Sheldrake or uh, Benoit Mandelbrot, uh, who come up with these huge breakthroughs, and then you look at how their scientific colleagues respond to them, uh, where you begin to see m much more of the primate behavior uh, as it responds to uh, somebody who is a highly integrated human being. Right. And we, we, you know, there was a chapter about victimization in science in that, in that second volume. And uh, we went into some great detail around this because if you look over the course of history, this theme has replayed itself upteen times. You know, we, I don't know how far back you want to go, but we can start just with, you know, Copernicus and Galileo. Copernicus was lucky enough to, I, I think, depart the mortal, mortal, mortal coil before he was challenged by the church. But Galileo wasn't so lucky. And in that case, science was just beginning, at least Western science, was just beginning its emergent journey to separate itself from the church and, and the constraints that the church imposed on worldview. And then, of course, science flowered. And we called it the Age of Enlightenment. We saw the flowering of new, a new way of looking at the world, which brought us Newton and, and, and the mechanical Newtonian model. And it gave way to physics, mechanical, you know, basic mechanical physics, which also gave way eventually to electromagnetism, all those things. And then it, it, when you look at the scientists who were, pivotal in those evolutionary steps, each one of them encountered resistance by the culture when they brought a new, a new idea into the, into the mix. And I, I, I'm fond these days of quoting uh, Arthur uh, Schopenhauer, <clears throat> uh, his quote about the three stages of truth. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Yeah, I, I, well, go ahead. I'd like to hear you uh, rephrase it. All right. Well, stage one, uh, the truth is denied. Stage two, it's, it's uh, violently resisted and fought against. And stage three, it's seen as self-evident fact. So, so 
This has this speaks to the the primal process itself because depending on who you're delivering the truth to, they will receive the message in a different way because each of the mindsets has a role to play in wit in the way in which we interpret and see information. So if you're a fighting mindset person and you're in the science you're a scientific academic at some illustrious university and you have some upstart undergrad comes to your courses and starts to ask you some um, uncomfortable questions, you will see a replay of the pecking order mindsets of, of the primal mind system. Because a lot of times the, the big apes, you know, when you look at dynamics in the ape community, the big apes, big apes will ignore the subordinate apes. And that's a part of their virility display. And, but, you know, if you're in science, you, you can ill afford to do that. Now, not all scientists are like that, of course. There's some scientists who have moved beyond that, that, that constraint. And, you know, when you look at, oh my goodness, Richard Feynman, and as you mentioned, Rupert Sheldrake, um, and, um, John Wheeler, I mean, John Wheeler is an amazing example of a physicist who went through an, a huge uh, a transformation trajectory. He had three stages, he said, in his career, in his thinking. He said in stage one, everything was particles. In stage two, everything was waves. And in stage three, everything was information. And when he said that, you know, a light went on for me, and I realized what he was referring to as information isn't the way we normally hear the word. We think of it more like a verb in formation so that things are coming into form from the formless. And this speaks to the indeterminacy of nature that sure, there are particles that do collapse the wave function and materialize though we experience a material reality. But there's a lot going on in our world and our reality that isn't necessarily wave-collapsed systems. And one of the things I mentioned, one interview I gave to um, uh, George Nuri on Coast to Coast one back last year, and it was just at the top of my head, Jeff. I didn't expect I would say this, but it came out <laughs> in the interview. And, and since then, I thought about it, and I thought, no, there's a lot of value to this. Language itself, language itself, is a wave-collapsing system. Let that sink in for a second. Language itself is a wave-collapsing system. So that when we're thinking words and we're expressing words with each other, there is a limitation that occurs when we speak a word and it solidifies a concept in our head. It cements it and makes it inflexible. And that's one of the dangers, I think, that we have in science, is that we get very fond of our categories. And so scientists become the priests, the new priests of the orthodoxy, of the wave-collapsed mind. But some scientists, like John Wheeler and Rupert Sheldrake and uh, Richard Feynman, and the list could go on and on and on, they understand at some point, they enter into the mystical side of science because a lot of them were drawn to science for those very reasons to begin with. You know, curiosity drove them into the... Richard Feynman had an insatiable curiosity 
asking questions all the time about why something happens the way it did. And then that would open it up into some new, into some new realm. And I, and I can't remember the terminology he used. Oh yes, Feynman diagrams. If anyone's ever looked at a Feynman, Feynman diagram, you're going, what the heck is that? You know, it doesn't look like an equ conventional equation because he was moving beyond the, the constraint of an equation. He was saying that there's, we have to start to think in almost more metaphorical, allegorical terms because those are the only terms which can kind of justify or, sorry, capture the subtlety that preserves you might say, the more indeterminate state. And that's what we get when we read poetry. Poetry is full of allusion, not illusion, allusion, alludes to things, and it gives us that fuzzy logic, and we feel it intuitively, and we go, oh yeah, okay, I get it. You know, you get something that's beyond the limitations of the word itself as a definition. Paul, uh, this has been a beautiful discussion, and you're provoking me to ask you a question, which comes way outside of your book, but because of your background as a Buddhist practitioner, I want to bring up the Heart Sutra and uh, the phrase, form is emptiness, emptiness is form, because I think when you talk about information, uh, that's what we're getting at. Yeah, yeah, we are, and it's that's where the intention of the mind I guess Buddhism was teaching that kind of high, high level quantum. I don't know if I want to call it quantum physics. I might call it quantum spirituality, where the intention of the mind is a real force in the in the world, and that if you bring uh, compassion into the world uh, as a, as a, an effort, that yes, your actions are going to have to be expressed in a more material way with other people, but the energy that's informing those actions is somehow more full. And we feel that, you know, when you're in a room with a, a really uh, well-developed uh, or a very experienced teacher, and I've been in the room with some pretty, pretty amazing teachers, like not just the Dalai Lama, and not, not to say that just the Dalai Lama, that's, that's, that's not to belittle his accomplishments, but other other very accomplished teachers, and when you're in the room with folks like that, there's a presence that's way beyond just the, the corporeal form, and you know it, and you feel it, and you you know you feel it in your bones. And I remember seeing one of those teachers that I had the great fortune of being in the company with for a week. This back in the year 2000 was uh, Penor Rinpoche, or uh, Pema Norbu Rinpoche, the longer form of his name, His Holiness Pema Norbu Rinpoche. He was the head of the Nyingma lineage, Nyingma Pa lineage. And uh, he, he passed away in, I believe it was 2009. And shortly after he had passed away, an, a video started to circulate. And it was about the rainbow body. And I'd heard about the rainbow body, but the monks had actually filmed this rainbow light that was literally moving through the monastery on a clear blue sky day. Not a rainfall day. A blue, that doesn't happen. You know, you, that, no, at least it did happen. They filmed it. And what it's supposed to be is that the teacher is displaying for the benefit of those who are still here the fact that there is another 
realm of consciousness that continues on beyond the corporeal limitation. And, you know, when you see the video, you I mean, you hear this kind of stuff talked about <laughs> through your, your many years of teachings and you go, oh, it's a little bit fanciful, but hey, you know, what the heck? It's a good story. You know, when you hear about monks who can, who, who were able to escape a jail by going through the bars, the metal bars of the jail, you know, you go, yeah, okay, it's, it's a bit fanciful and, but it stretches, <laughs> stretches the credibility of the story. But you know, suddenly you start to think, well, what if it is possible? What? And all of a sudden your mind becomes, you know, open like a child, you know? What did Jesus say about, come on to me, well, like, like little children? The innocence, you know, coming, coming to the universe, coming to nature with innocence and being prepared to be amazed. And that speaks to the intention state of the mind as to what is maybe necessary as a precondition in order to evolve. Just be, be simple, be a receiving, be, be accepting, and, and don't judge. And as it comes in, it'll waft over you. And as it does, you will be informed and it will, it'll have a transformative power in your consciousness. And these are the subtle, very subtle lessons you kind of, you know, inculcate over time through osmosis. They call it transmission. I think that's a good word, you know, transmission from the teacher to the student because you're in the company of that higher vibration and somehow you are absorbing it and that benefits you. And so no wonder there are so many students that, you know, will travel thousands of miles to go and see a teacher because once you've had a taste of that, you know that there's nothing else that compares to that. Certainly not a TV program on, on uh, cable, cable, uh, the cable networks. <laughs> we, we try to convey a little bit of that, at least on the YouTube uh, channel, and, and you've certainly done that right now. And you do a good job, too, with your program. I mean, you're opening doors all over the place, Jeff, and I, I commend you. I mean, that's what allowed me to connect with you, because I had seen some of your your other programs, and I was very impressed. I must say, I was very impressed with what I saw. Well, Paul, I know we've just scratched the surface of, of those two magnificent books. They're multifaceted. Uh, you really cover almost uh, every area of human inquiry, from the quantum physics and uh, molecular biology to evolutionary psychology and uh, spiritual disciplines. Uh, it, it's amazing what you and your co-author have accomplished, and I hope that we uh, have more opportunities to uh, go into uh, further detail about these things. Me too. I hope we have some fun in the future with this. I would look forward to that, but uh, for now, Paul, thank you very much for uh, taking the time for this uh, session. This has been magnificent. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm.